Meryl Streep said that instant gratification was not soon enough. We live in a culture that hates to wait. It's become so much the part of our thinking as Americans that we are impatient beyond recognition. We won't wait for anything. I hate to wait. Most of us hate to wait for any type of delayed gratification. It translates into an impatience to finish school, an impatience to find the right boyfriend, girlfriend, an impatience to uh, find or express your meaning, your purpose in life. I find talking to 20 and 30 year olds this trend of impatience. They've got to find their passion. They can't take a normal job because it doesn't fit their passion. There's almost a holy obsession with, I can't do that because it's not my passion. It's not my dream. It's not my wiring. There is an impatience to earn, to accumulate, to achieve. There's an impatience in in business. We see it now speed is the new money. Uh, Commerce has become almost secondary to the speed with which you can move as a company, an organization, make decisions, get into a market, get into a niche. Our culture has become frenetic with instant gratification. Uh, The uh, idea of delaying gratification to a future time is foreign to most of us in this room. I remember as a boy in elementary school, learning about you know, our, our, our country, our culture, and sociology, and uh, commerce, and whatnot, we learned the concept of deficit spending. I remember going home and asking my parents, what is deficit spending? How can you spend money you don't have? As a child of a Depression-age parent, that was a common notion. You didn't spend money you didn't have. I don't think my dad had a credit card until he was in his 40s. You only lived on cash. That was the culture. That was even before Dave Ramsey. You just, you know, you didn't have a way to spend money you didn't have. And today, it's nonsensical to even think for a second we wouldn't just get what we want, get what we need, get whatever it is that is hanging out there. Rudyard Kipling wrote a poem called If. I would encourage you to take opportunity. It's about 300 words. It's a short poem. But one line in it stands out, if you can wait and not be tired by waiting, if you can wait and not be tired by waiting, and there's all these stanzas, and the last line is, you will be a man, my son. If you can wait and not be tired by waiting. Now enter the spiritual life. On the one hand, we have an instantaneous culture. How many of your children, our children, have an iPhone by what age? Instant gratification, texting, Snapchatting, instant communication. How many of them live in a culture where everything is instant? Now take the spiritual life and overlay it. What's instant? Nothing. Spiritual life is in between. It's a waiting. It's a confident assurance of things hoped for with the conviction of things not yet seen. It's so different from the way we look at the American life. We are so inoculated, indoctrinated. We're so engulfed in this world of do these things and certain things happen and we all have them. It's not bad or wrong. It's just the culture we're in. How do you juxtapose that against a spiritual life that's hard to measure, nebulous, ambiguous, tentative, in between, doesn't work the way life works. Yeah, that's the challenge for the believer in Christ in the West or in the globe is to live by faith, not by sight. God has appointed things to happen in certain times, and we are rarely, if 
ever privileged to know that time. So how do you live by faith, waiting for a thing that you and I may want, but he may not be about? Do we live with discouragement? Do we live with dispassion? Do we live with, oh, I can't do that, so I'll do something else? Or do we live with a view to serving him? Faith waits for God. Faith waits for the appointed time. The question looms, are you willing to wait? Because as sure as the day is long, if you and I get out of step with what God's doing, we're going to have an Ishmael. As soon as we try to make it happen our way, we're going to have a byproduct we didn't bargain for. And that's been the storyline of Genesis in the life of Abraham. Open your Bible, please, to Genesis chapter 21. We'll look today at the first seven verses. Chapter 21 is about the birth of Isaac. It's a great story of joy and blessing, but the bulk of the chapter deals with the expulsion of Ishmael. Seven verses, very compactly, Isaac's born. The rest of the chapter, Ishmael will be expelled. Following your Bible, I'll read the first seven verses, Genesis chapter 21. Then the Lord took note of Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he promised. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, and God commanded, as God commanded him. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. The chapter is simply about the promise being fulfilled as God had spoken. If you want to put it in a short sentence of theology, God's word is reliable. That's the big idea of the storyline. God's word is true. God's word can be trusted. God at his word is reliable. That's the big proposition of the story that we see culminating in the birth of Isaac. I want you to look again at verses 1 and 2 carefully. Then the Lord took note of Sarah. The first verb in our passage is the, a verb of divine intervention. This word is used a number of different ways in our Old Testament. It's always used where God is divinely intervening. He might be intervening in a war. He might be intervening in a time of judgment. In Hosea 9, he's intervening with retribution. In Genesis chapter 50, when Joseph is giving a blessing to his brothers, who have, uh, his whole family system, he tells them, swear, I swear to you, God will surely take care of you. That's the same word. God's going to divinely intervene in your life and provide for you. We live on a horizontal set of affairs in America. We do this, do this. We, we, we go through teenage years, college perhaps, get a job. Maybe we get married, have children. We have this little horizontal view of life. God divinely intervenes our life at times. And we see the same in antiquity. In Genesis 21, it's a divine intervention of a 25-year-old promise. He told Abram and Sarai they would have children 
innumerable, like the sands of the sea of the stars of the heavens, like our set. You can't count all the stars. You can't count all the sand. And this will be what I will do for you. He's a hundred years old, 25 years later, when that first child is son. It's going to take divine intervention for this to happen. And why this is so important is not merely because God's true to his word. It's because through Isaac will come the son of God. And that lineage has been set in stone before the foundation of the world when he said, you will be a blessing to the entire world, Abraham. And this is the first physical, tangible aspect of that, a human being that's born to two people well past their ability to bear children. A couple of other times we see this theme throughout Scripture where God visits people. Let me give you just a a survey. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, Hannah, you remember the story of Hannah. She's uh, unable to have a child, and she goes to the temple complex and prays and prays and prays. We read later in the storyline in 1 Samuel 2.21, the Lord visited Hannah, divine intervention, same word, and she conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew before the Lord because he'd been turned over to the priests. Our New Testament has a similar term. Obviously, it's Greek, not the Hebrew term. But in Greek, we have a similar term found in the birth narratives in Luke chapter 1. In chapter 1, verse 68, blessed be the God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption. Zacharias is speaking of his, he's, he's old. Elizabeth is past childbearing age. Got the same parallel, Abraham and Sarah, old, past childbearing age, never had children, and the Lord visits them, and they're going to have John the Baptist, who will be the forerunner of Messiah. And Zacharias says, the Lord has visited us. A divine intervention occurred. We continue in the Lucan narrative, chapter 177, to give his people the knowledge of salvation. Why is God divinely intervening? To give his people a knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercies of our God. Isn't that a great line? The tender mercies of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. God is going to, in human history, as we look at this linear set of events, at times he's going to divinely intervene We see it in a big way in Sarah and Abraham. He's 100 years old, and he gives birth to a son. The Lord took note. He visited Sarah, and she conceived and gave birth to Isaac. Now, look back at verses 1 and 2. If you have the New International Version, it renders it the same twice. It says, as he said, as he said. And that's not a bad rendering, because the words said and promised in the NASB are the same Hebrew word, debir. The emphasis is God said something. He said something. He said something. This is not just drone repetition. It's to make a point. God's word is reliable. God is reliable when he says something. When he says something, he will at a time intervene to prove that his word is reliable. So Sarah conceived. Don't forget the story, the bookends. They had gone down into Gerar, which, by the way, was part of the land of promise, While they were in Gerar, she was taken into Abimelech's harem. 
God made all the women in Gerar infertile during that time. So we have to look at the timestamp. It's about nine months to a year at least going on while they're in, in, in Gerar. So here is the woman who's been barren, brought into a harem at 90-something. All the women in Gerar are unable to have children. When she is rescued from that situation, the wombs of Gerar open up and her womb opens up and she conceives and bears Isaac. You've got to see the whole storyline of what he's doing with this woman who's never been able to conceive through her husband Abraham. Oh, we had the Ishmael Hagar situation, but not from, not from uh, Abraham and Sarah. So Sarah conceived. Three times we're told in verses 1 and 2, when God speaks, when he makes a promise, it is reliable. Can you trust him 100%? Do you trust him 100%? Do you always trust him every time? Or do you, like Abram and Sarai, Abraham and Sarah, get tired of waiting? Do we go into Hagar, metaphorically speaking, to make it work? Are we willing to wait 25 years? How many of us have had to wait 25 years for something? I'll just put it on the credit card. I won't wait 25 years. I'll just take another loan. I'll just go do it. I'll just go whatever I want. I'll make it happen. I'll work to that end. Because if I work hard enough, set a goal, specify it, get a plan, keep working after it, I can eventually accomplish it. That's the American way. And it's not bad or wrong, but it doesn't always work. And that's where faith must enter into the believer's life. He never lies, he's always true, and he will always deliver. Now, at some point in your life, if you're a believer in Christ, you had a personal encounter with the person and work of Jesus Christ. For me, it was at age 15. Some of you, different ages. Some of you came to Christ very young. Some as an adults. Some of you maybe haven't come to Christ yet. But I will never forget as long as I live, at 15 years of age, a kid who was basically stoned for two years straight. And when I came to Christ, there was such a dramatic change in my life. There was an encounter in my life that I cannot explain with human adjectives. All I can tell you is that I knew I was forgiven and that I got stoned or drunk three subsequent times, and each time I was more miserable than the time before. And the third and final time I got stoned or drunk after I had come to Christ, it was like God said, Michael, you're done with this. And to use, uh, I think it was Knox's illustration, our, our, our life is a forest of trees. All these giant trees are our sin. And God in his kindness takes the back of his hand and knocks over a few of them when we come to Christ. And that was the one he knocked over for me. He said, you're done with that. Because I, my guesstimation is, had I not been done with it, it would have killed me. God said, you're done with that one. And he just knocked it over. I didn't go into a treatment program. I didn't go into rehab. I never relapsed. I have no human explanation for it. I'm not any better than anybody else. God in his kindness said, you're done with that thing. I have no human explanation to know I was forgiven of sin. I went from an arrogant, proud jerk of a drug user to a blown away, humbled, repentant, I can't believe I'm forgiven sinner. And my life was changed. And everything about me changed. And you can argue with me till the cows come home. You will not change that story in my life and the reality of the encounter I had with Jesus Christ. Do you remember your encounter? 
Do you remember what you were like before and what happened afterwards? That wasn't because you figured it out or you're smart enough or some circumstances aligned. It was because God directly, divinely intervened into your life and introduced you to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that begins a relationship. Do we have it all figured out? No. It takes a lifetime to begin to figure it out. But that's when it began was that divine encounter. That divine encounter is so real and so powerful, most of us change our life entirely. Because God's word, God's spirit indwells us, and God's people help us to walk that journey. We're not like we used to be. We're dead men and women. And now we're alive. Sarah exclaims some great news in this text. Let's continue the story. Two things we're going to see, obedience and joy out of this divine intervention. Verse 3, Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. The text repeats it. It's his son, but oh, by the way, Sarah bore this one, not Hagar. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as God had commanded him. Now, Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. The threefold repetition, his son, his son, his son. Not to be confused next week with Hagar's son, who will be described very differently. His son Isaac, his son Isaac, his son Isaac. You won't see Ishmael described in the same fashion. God gave him the name in chapter 17. This is what you're going to call the lad. He also told him in chapter 17 that all the men had to be circumcised. And from there going forward, all boys eight days of age and older would be circumcised. On the eighth day, Abraham's ready to obey. God has granted this incredible gift. A hundred-year-old man has a son. The first thing he does is obeys God. And he circumcised his son and names him the name he intended. The joy is seen in in Sarah's record. And by the way, this is one of the few times we have a a little bit of a length of Sarah's comments. She's not recorded a lot in in the storyline. In fact, there's really nothing recorded technically from Abraham's mouth. The narrator records this, however, of Sarah, verse 6. Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Notice it's plural. Interesting. Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Turn back in your Bible to chapter 16, verse 2 for just a second. One or two pages back in your Bible, Genesis 16. Look at verse 2, just the first part. 16.2. I like hearing real pages in Bibles turn. It just warms my heart. Sorry. Genesis 16, 2. So Sarai, before Sarah, said to Abram, before Abraham, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Was she right? Was she right? Yes. Yes. God has prevented her from bearing children at that point in time. He had told them a promise coming out of chapter 12 that your descendants will be innumerable. This chapter, he's 100 years old. It's 25 years later. It's easy to do the math because the Bible gives us the numbers in this case. He's 75 out of Ur. He's 100 in this text. 25 years they waited. In chapter 16, she says, God prevented me. Technically, she's right. Now, her solution is unfortunate. Go into Hagar. And that's what the flesh does. That's what we all do. 
because I don't like waiting on God, so I'm going to do it my way. Poor comparison. I don't want to save the money to buy it. I'm going to put it on my credit card and pay it out monthly. Not right or wrong, just a comparison. In her case, I can't have children. God's prevented me from having children. Let's try it this way. And boy, does that create a problem for Israel forever. God's way means to wait. 75 years of age, waiting 25, it's still a long time. Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Well, remember the story of the wordplay on laughter all through this story where he laughs in disbelief, where she laughs not believing at all, like this is ridiculous, where he laughs a jovial laugh, kind of I can't believe it's going to happen and all points in between, and now she spins it. God's made laughter for me, and everyone who hears will laugh with me. We say in English, not at me. So the whole idea is they'll be, they'll be elated with me that this old woman is nursing a baby. Who would have thought this could possibly happen? God can raise the dead And God has opened a dead womb and a man who was infertile at a hundred and enabled them to conceive a child. Derek Kidner writes the name, potentially a reproach, now becomes a joy. Remember the root Yitzhak is laughter. Isaac, the mocking, we'll see later that in this chapter next week that Ishmael will mock and we're not sure precisely what it means in that text, but he's going to mock his, his, let's call it younger half-brother, or mock uh, Sarah. We don't know precisely. But the laughter is no longer disbelief. The laughter is a laughter of joy. Listen to what Frederick Beekner writes about this whole laughing motif. When God told Abraham, who turned 100 at the time, that his wife of 90 years of age, Sarah, was finally going to give him a baby, Abraham came close to knocking himself out. He fell on his face and laughed, as Genesis 17 put it. In another story, in chapter 18, Sarah is hiding behind the door eavesdropping. Here, it's Sarah herself who nearly splits a gut. Although when God asks her about it afterwards, she denies, no, but you did laugh, God says, thus having the last word as well as the first. God doesn't seem to hold their outburst against them, however. On the contrary, God tells them the baby's going to be a boy, and they're going to name him Isaac. Isaac in Hebrew, of course, means laughter. Why did the old crooks laugh? They laughed because they knew only a fool would believe a woman with one foot in the grave was soon to have one foot in the maternity ward. They laughed because God expected them to believe it anyway. They laughed because God seemed to believe it. They laughed because they half believed it themselves. They laughed because laughing felt better than crying. They laughed because if by some crazy chance it happened to come true, they would really have something to laugh about. And in the meanwhile, it helped keep them going. Faith is confident assurance of things hoped for with the conviction of things not yet Scene, Beekner concludes. Faith is better understood as a process, not a product. Faith is believing God in motion. Faith is confident assurance of what we hope for, but we can't see the end of it. It's like nothing in the American dream. If we do this, then that happens. That's how we operate, whether we know it or not. If then. 
faith is if, maybe. If I know it's going to happen ultimately, but I don't know how it's going to work in between. Faith, to me, only matters in between. As I've said many occasions before, I don't trust God when I don't need him. When my health is good, my marriage is good, my kids are doing well, I like my job, X money in the bank, whatever you want to, however you want to check the boxes in your life, when those things are going well, I really don't need God. Now I'm happy and I'm thankful, but I don't need him because I've built these styrofoam walls of security. But you touch my marriage, you touch my health, you touch my wife's health, you touch my children's health, you touch my children, you touch my job, I lose my money, then I really need God, don't I? Isn't it amazing how flimsy we really are? We build our little paper box house, our cardboard house, and we have it all aligned and all right with the world. Our financial plans in order are, I mean, goodness gracious, maybe you have long-term disability insurance. Maybe you have long-term care insurance. Maybe your house is paid for. Maybe you've got a foundation. Maybe you've got a couple of homes. Maybe the whole thing's checked off. You got it all figured out until. And then it all stops. Cancer knocks on the door. Death knocks on the door. A divorce knocks on the door. A disability enters your life. Some huge discouraging thing. The markets quake. Something unfair and injustice happens. And that house of cards folds in a heartbeat. Oh, it might still be there, but it doesn't do for you what it did for you. Right? Faith is in between. Do you trust God when you're infertile for 25 years? That's the challenge. Can we wait on God's timing? Can we smile at a future and not live in fear? Can we obey in the meantime? And do we properly rejoice when God does bless and intervene in our lives? A growing believer learns to wait. I'd like to pray for us as we conclude, and I want you to close your eyes. And I've written this in the first-person pronoun, so try to enter in if you can. You don't have to if it doesn't reflect your heart and mind. But let me, let me lead us in a prayer, and I would invite you to join in your heart and mind to God. To you, a day is as a thousand, a thousand as one day, God. Gracious and patient, teach me to wait. I fear to pray for patience, lest you put my life on hold. I dare not push or plan too hard, lest I am on my own. So sheepishly I ask you, teach me to wait. I am a child, I hate to wait. I want things now. I want to fix when you seem inactive. I want to hurry when you seem slow. I know I'm wrong, but I hate to wait. Impatience and impetuousness, argument and anger, control and dominance, overbearing and too much pressure, Reveal youth or immaturity.
Silver wisdom waits. Godliness means contentment. Help me to know a holy place between apathy and overzealousness. Help me know when to rest and when to press. Help me to know when it is me, my flesh, my ambition, disconnected from you. Help me never sanctify the strength of my personality. Help me never shrink from doing and being. Help me lead with a non-anxious presence. Help me know you so closely that the waiting is never inconvenient, but always a joy. You somehow entered the constraints of time. Somehow you wait. You waited for your people. You waited for your plan. You waited for your son. You waited for me. And you wait for your chosen. Create in me a waiting heart, ready to serve you in a moment's notice, willing to wait well, if that's my lot. And by your grace and mercy, help me to smile at the future in the in-between. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Have a great waiting week. God bless you.